Hey, this is Jobek Motsky and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. I've got a really special guest with me today. His name is Michael Jeffett, and Michael is not only an expert in oncology, but he's also a passionate advocate for cancer survivors. In this episode, Michael shares some truly inspirational words of wisdom on how you can take control of your life during treatment and what to do when this whole uncertainty and stress around cancer really gets to you. And Michael also has some tremendous insights on on how you can deal with the challenges that come with rebuilding your life after cancer. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Michael, I know from experience that uh, this fear of cancer coming back is is very real. Like it gets hold of you and much more so after, after occurrence if, if you get that. So what can be done with it to deal with it in a better way, both from a healthcare perspective as well as uh, from a perspective of a person who needs to deal with it right now? Yeah. So we know that the worry about cancer coming back or cancer growing or spreading is, is very, very common. Uh, and we know um, from a lot of work that's been done in Australia and, and internationally, but Australia is, is really leading in this area, that the worry about cancer coming back is very common and it can last a long time. Uh, and people talk about kind of learning strategies to deal with this. And they can be a number of different things. So some, for some people, it's about acknowledging um, anxiety or distress and being able to recognize that and to uh, have strategies to deal with it. For some people, it's useful to to understand what their risk of recurrence might be and to put that into some perspective. And for some people, the risk of recurrence might be quite low and that might be, I guess, comforting. We know too that uh, for some people, being able to do all that they can to manage the risk of recurrence is useful. And so strategies like being as well as you can be, um, maintaining, uh, you know, exercising, a healthy diet, p- participating in a regular surveillance where it's um, recommended and evidence-based, but also I think talking to people about how you feel and recognizing the, the stress that comes with having had cancer and follow-up and the like. And sometimes that's useful to talk to other people who have been in a similar experience. So perhaps um, for some people being connected to a, a support group or uh, something like Cancer Connect that the Cancer Council runs. And for some people, it's useful to have the opportunity to talk to a professional. And that might be a counsellor or a psychologist or somebody else like that. Yeah, that's so true, Michael, because sometimes you really need someone with an outside perspective, someone who isn't involved with you to um, listen to you and to perhaps give you advice, right? Yeah, look, I agree. And I think that a lot of people are probably, you know, friends and family could be well-meaning, but potentially might not recognize that the, the concerns that people have. And, you know, to have an attitude of, you know, it's behind you, you'll be fine, may not actually help people who are really worried about the possibility of cancer coming back. And so having the opportunity to talk to other people who either might have been in a similar experience, so a peer or a professional, can be useful. And we know that there are a number of interventions that have been studied in very rigorous scientific research um, that have been shown to be effective in helping people to minimize and or to reduce that sort of concern about cancer coming back. Yeah, that, that is so true. And I, I know you touched on having some information around 
about around the facts. And I know that one of the things that really helped me was immersing myself in cancer, like becoming an expert in my own illness, so to speak, because it gave me a confidence in, in, in the treatment and the side effects and understanding the chances, the chances of it coming back. And it also made me ask informed questions as well. So uh, do you think is, is this a good approach? Is this something you, you would recommend to others? Yeah, I think that um, everybody's different. And certainly in my own experience, you come across people who have very different sort of uh, styles and needs for information. And there are people who uh, who say, look, I want all of the information. And they they come along and they've researched their, their illness and treatments uh, and know as much as, you know, the healthcare team. There are other people who say, look, you know, I, I trust you. I want you to give me the best best advice. And so everyone's a bit different. And I think that there are people who... You know, I might provide written information and some people will say, yeah, that's great. I really want that. And other people say, oh, I don't want to read it. But it's handy to have at home in case they want some good evidence-based information. So I kind of don't force a particular, um, my own preference or, or an own, my own belief on anybody. But I guess recognize that everybody has different information needs and different styles. And And one of the things that I often talk about is that, uh, you know, for example, I go to see my accountant and I probably shouldn't confess this, but I don't know a lot about um, accountancy and tax, but I put my faith and trust in my accountant with the belief that he's going to do the right thing by me. And so I think that everyone's going to be different and we need to be able to fit in with people's information and information preferences and their own preferences about decision making. I know you just mentioned that people have different preferences with respect to information. Did you notice any patterns with regards to, for example, men and women have different preferences, or maybe people of different ages. What's your take on that? Uh, I don't think that there's... I, I think it's pretty hard to generalize. And so you do... I think probably there's a trend that younger people probably want to be more involved and, and often want to have more information. And I guess that we've come from a situation of maybe, let's say, 50 years ago, where maybe it was more of a doctor knows best kind of belief. There's less of that now, but at the same time, there are many people who go, you know, who almost feel burdened to, if you say, do you want chemotherapy A or chemotherapy B? Some people will say, well, I don't know, you know, <laughs> you tell me. And, and almost feel that it's burdensome to be given that sort of um, being asked to make that decision. But it's, you know, I guess that we have to recognize that everyone's different and we can't assume that just because someone's older or younger that they're going to have a particular preference for informa information or preference for decision making. And so it's, I think the easiest thing is just to ask. Yeah, absolutely. I know when I was, for example, decided between my treatments, I could go either to the radiation or chemotherapy. And in, in the end, what really decided for me was the person on the other end, because I spoke to a radiation oncologist and a medical oncologist. And I really, without even, you know, talking about side effects, different side effects and, and treatment, my medical oncologist gave me all this confidence that, you know, things will be taken care of. And mm. if any problems should arise, we can work around it. And it was just ultimately, having the person on the other end who you put your trust into. Yeah, look, I think that being in a situation where you trust the person that you're working with is really important. And I think that that's true of, you know, when I go to see my accountant, I trust the accountant. You know, so I think that that's really important in, in having a relationship with, you know, any professional, indeed anyone, that you really want to find somebody who you can work with, who you trust, and, uh, you know, you're going to be able to have that sustained relationship with. Absolutely. And Michael, I know that there are many alternative treatments that 
really have no evidence for treating cancer that can give false hope and and then take people off track so can you talk about what some of these supposed treatments are yeah so i think that uh you're right i think there are plenty of treatments that are recommended or that are promoted that may not be evidence-based and there may actually be no information to support their use Some of these treatments that have um, been suggested as cancer treatments have been studied and have either been shown to be not effective or toxic or both. Um, And and many of them just simply haven't been studied. So uh, I I guess that for a lot of the, you know, we don't know um, for many of the treatments. And I guess that what we would recommend is that people need to get information, try to find out whether there is um, data that supports this, and talk to people, talk to their family, talk to their GP, talk to their oncologists. You know, if there's something that's been suggested, um, then talk with people about that uh, and try and get the information and, and be confident that they're going down the right path. Yeah, absolutely. And wh- where do you think that stuff comes from? Is it, is it like conspiracy theories or um, is it some hope for a magic cure? What is it? I think that it's, um, you know, a lot of circumstances we don't have treatments that are good enough. And so many illnesses, particularly if cancer spread to somewhere else, uh, in many circumstances, the standard treatments that we have are unlikely to lead to cure. And for many people, that's you know devastating. And so they want to find something that's going to give them a better chance. And I think that most people are looking for other options with the hope of a better outcome. And that better outcome might be a better chance of cure or longer survival fewer side effects, those sorts of things. So I think that people have very legitimate reasons for looking for other options. And unfortunately, sometimes sometimes I think people are misled. And I think that there are people out there who are making money because people are desperate and they're looking for something more than what can be offered by standard medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you know if this supposed treatment, if it's a myth or reality? Yeah. So uh, I think that, again, it's probably trying to get information yourself, uh, but also talking to people and looking for um, other sources of, of evidence. So the Cancer Council has an information service, so 13 11 20, and people can call that service and speak to a cancer nurse um, and talk to them about treatment options. And they might say, look, you know, I've been given some information about this type of chemotherapy or this, you know, putting a magnet on your head or something. Um, <laughs> and they'll, the nurses on the cancer helpline will be able to uh, look up that information uh, and they'll be able to, pr- to talk to somebody about the sorts of treatments that are being suggested. Uh, I, have, I have patients who will bring in information and sometimes I'll, you know, I'll be able to talk about that straight away. Sometimes I'll say, I haven't heard about that. Can you let me look that up? And then next time we catch up, we can talk some more about it. So I think it's really important that people uh, talk to their health practitioners, but get information and feel confident that the, that the treatment that they're going to embark on is evidence-based. Yeah, and uh, and I think you brought up a fantastic point that nurses, I think nurses are so underrated when, you know, when we talk about cancer treatment. I've had so much fantastic advice from nurses, from oncology nurses over the phone, in hospital, that, you know, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't say enough good things about them. Yeah, look, I agree. And uh, the, the nurses often, um, they sometimes have more time and, and can often help people with understanding the information they've been given, help people to make a decision that sits with them, help people with a broad range of issues that might be 
health related, it might be emotional, it might be social, it might be practical. So, uh, and those nurses might be in the hospital or the clinic, but they might also be in the community. And, And I guess that that's, you know, having a good team around you, which is your specialists, people in the hospital or in the clinic, but also a GP, potentially a practice nurse. Uh, And then, you know, I guess it's about having uh, other supports as well, which might be, you know, through the Cancer Council, through a support group, um, friends, family, all of that network of people around you. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's so important to have your supporters around you, You your family, like you mentioned, your friends and specialists. So if we kind of flip our, our conversation on to, to talk about complementary therapies, so what are some of the approaches that can help someone deal with cancer or having a better life after cancer? So uh, as we were just discussing, you know, getting making sure that you have support is an important sort of component of getting through cancer treatment and life after treatment. So I think that support's really important, and that could be through family and friends, but it could also be through support services. Uh, and that might be a support group, it might be an online forum, it might be a telephone-based support. So that's, I think, important. In terms of what else can you do to be well and get through treatment, you know, it's probably not a surprise, but uh, exercise is really important. There's growing evidence that exercise helps people get through treatment. Uh, and probably reduces the chance of cancer coming back, but has broad benefits. It helps people with mood, with sleep, um, with coping with treatment. So exercise is important. It's not always easy to incorporate exercise, but we know that some is better than none and more is better than less. Um, (laughs) And also, I guess on that, a lot of hospitals don't have a lot of exercise programs, but GPs can link you in with um, exercise programs through a referral to an exercise physiologist or through a physiotherapist that's Medicare reimbursed. Uh, and then there are also exercise programs that are run by, for example, the Cancer Council. Uh, so they have a program called Healthy Living After Cancer uh, that you can again call 131120. I don't work for the Cancer Council, but, uh, <laughs> but I do recommend them. So that's a program that people can access at no charge. I guess also thinking about diet and alcohol, uh, that will help people get through treatment. Um, minimizing alcohol. We know that alcohol can actually increase the risk of cancer coming back for some cancer types, including breast cancer. So it's important to be aware of alcohol consumption. And then there are other strategies that some people would call complementary. So Tai Chi and Qigong, we know can actually uh, help with well-being and relaxation. Um, so there are also strategies that we would consider to be very complementary that sit aside standard therapies. Yeah, that, that's fantastic, Michael. I should <laughs> look into that. And Michael, if you're gay or lesbian or transgender, you, you might really have special needs and, and you might even have to deal with some prejudice when it comes to dealing with cancer. Like, so what would you say to someone who's having to deal with it right now? Like, what should you expect and, and where should you turn to if things aren't going to plan? Yeah, so I, I think you're right. I think there are a number of groups that probably feel that it's a more difficult journey for one reason or another, and it might be LGBT communities, it might be migrants, it might be Aboriginal people, a number of different groups that probably have a a tougher journey. And I think that that can be part of a problem with having health professionals who don't necessarily sit comfortably with different groups. We know that there's probably, to an extent, that people perceive that there's either more of a heterocentric sort of attitude or if, or even homophobic attitude sometimes in health. So sometimes it's hard for people who are gay, lesbian, transgendered people in the healthcare setting. 
Uh, and it might be important to therefore go and look for additional support services, uh, of which there are, uh, are services. Now, I know that BCNA, the Breast Cancer Network of Australia, and PCFA, the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, both have good links to information and support services. Now, that's not just for people who have breast cancer or prostate cancer. So, um, you know, if you had listeners who were gay or lesbian or had partners, um, you know, or friends who needed extra information, then I'd suggest going to those websites because they do list services that are not specific to particular cancer types. Uh, Again, the Cancer Council uh, has resources too. So uh, sometimes it's tough, uh, but to have that additional information and support and link to, uh, to people who've been through a similar circumstance could be useful. You make a great point, Michael, because I guess there's a lot of things that some of those support services focused around breast cancer and prostate cancer because they're more prevalent. But um, a lot of those needs, like you mentioned, around it are, are universal. So um, you know, people that have cancers, it's a great point that they should go into and, and look up some of these services. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, breast cancer and prostate cancer aren't the only cancers that people have, and, and they're certainly not the only cancers that, that gay, lesbian people have. So if you have bowel cancer or if you have, you know, any other cancer type, it's still worth contacting those sorts of resources because most of these support groups aren't cancer specific. And many of the issues, if you're a gay man or lesbian woman and you wanted to, you know, many of the issues you might experience would be shared regardless of whether the, of the, t- the type of cancer you might have. Uh, and so I think that support would still be useful regardless of the cancer type. Yeah, exactly. And you touched on other underprivileged groups, like, for example, migrants that, that, you know, might not be heard because they might not have the language skills or maybe the cultural integration to kind of speak up. And so folks like that can really fall through the cracks when it comes to, to healthcare and cancer because they may not feel understood. So what can we do to make that better? So there's Australian research that shows that migrants to Australia who have cancer do have worse outcomes and they often report poorer quality of life, more anxiety, depression, etc. Some of the recommendations from that work were that many people feel more comfortable with practitioners who speak their own language. So I think it's uh, useful to try and seek out people who speak their own language and understand their own culture. That might be useful. There's always the opportunity to to, uh, use an interpreter, and I think that that it's important. It's better that we don't have family members who have to act as interpreters. Sometimes family members who might be well-meaning might uh, withhold some information from people, uh, which isn't always ideal. So I think using an interpreter is a good strategy. The Cancer Council does have um, a growing amount of information that's available in other languages. And at the Survivorship Centre here at Peter Mac, we've developed information uh, for people who have completed initial treatment for cancer in many different languages, which is being, um, I guess, promoted through the Cancer Council nationwide. So I think that there are some strategies. The, we talked earlier about a telephone information service that's run by Cancer Council um, 131120, but you can access that with an interpreter. So that's another uh, avenue as well. At Peter Mac, we're doing some work on audio recording consultations, um, and that can be useful too for people to have that co- their consultation audio recorded with an interpreter, and then it can be useful to go back and listen to that. Um, so I guess we do need to think about what additional strategies we can do so that people don't fall through the gaps, like you said. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, recording conversation would be actually fantastic, even from perspective of people who don't have a language barrier, because I know from personal experience and, and some research that I've read about as well, that, you know, when people go through 
uh, often through like a cancer diagnosis, the first meeting, you, you, you're just in the fog and you walk out of the first appointment with, let's say, you know, an oncologist or a urologist and you remember nothing about what happened. <laughs> so it would be really good to refer back to something that you can listen to and go, oh, yes, so that's what we were talking about. Yeah. So uh, th- there is actually good evidence that using audio recordings uh, and also question prompt lists can help people to... Uh, question prompt lists are really just a list of questions that you might like to ask. And we've developed some question prompt lists here, including for cancer survivors. So a list of questions that you might like to ask your health professional. And that can help sort of um, be a note and be an aid when you go to a consultation to go, yeah, I actually do want to ask these questions here. So that can help with question asking and that you can ask the questions that might be difficult to raise, that it might be about, I want to talk about the cost of treatment, or I want to talk about the impact on relationships or sexuality, or some things that aren't always asked in a consultation. So that can be a useful way of helping people when they go into a consultation. There's also good evidence that recording a consultation helps people too. They remember that it's an aid. It means that they get a lot more out of the consultation. Like you said, you go to a consultation and you know, you're stunned by bad news and then you just don't hear anything more. Uh, and that's why taking notes, having a, a friend there, having an audio recording can help. And uh, you know, we've known for a while that these sorts of things help. It's about trying to make sure that they get implemented. And colleagues at Peter Mac have a, a program at the moment or an app that's called Second Ears, um, which will allow people to record the consultation on their phone, um, but also so that we get a copy that we can keep in the record as well. Oh, second years. I, I love it. What <laughs> <laughs> wasn't around when I was. Um, so, Michael, that's, that's fantastic. So, when it comes to you, you mentioned um, having those pre prepared questions. I think that that sounds like a fantastic resource. So, where would you go to, to get those questions? And also, who would you take those questions to? Is it a medical specialist? Is it the general practitioner? And what are some of the questions that you should ask? Yeah, so that's a big question. So, <laughs> um, so I guess it depends on the, that person's individual circumstance. So if you're newly diagnosed versus you're finishing treatment versus um, another setting, then you might have a different set of questions. Let's say you've finished treatment, you had an all clear and you're just going to deal with checkups yep. and you want to improve your life going forward. Yeah. So these question prompt lists, we have a question prompt list on the Australian Cancer Survivorship Centre website, www.petermac.org slash cancer survivorship. Um, so there's a list of questions there. And some of those questions might be about, you know, tell me about what sort of follow-up I might expect, um, or tell me what's the purpose of follow-up, or it might be uh, a question that you might want to ask about, you know, what sort of signs and symptoms should I look out for? It might be about what are the sorts of things that I can do to be as well as I can be or to minimize the chance of the cancer coming back. Some people might like to ask about, you know, are there effects that might happen to me down the track? You know, we talk about uh, late and long-term effects. Um, People might be curious about that, but they might also want to know, uh, are my family members at risk of cancer? Or it might be about how do I get support or can you recommend websites? So everybody's gonna have a different set of questions. And some people might feel more comfortable asking, you know, their cancer nurse some of the questions or their GP or their specialist. Uh, I would say, you know, if you've got questions, ask everybody until you, until you get the answer. And the GP might say, I don't know, I know, you know, what your risk of long-term effects is, uh, chat to your oncologist. 
and your oncologist might, you know, you might say, well, can you put me in touch with a psychologist in my local area? They mightn't know, but the GP might. So I kind of think it's important to have the questions and then see who you think might be the right person to ask them. Um, you know, if you've had a good relationship with a cancer nurse and the cancer nurse was great at putting, putting you in touch with support services, you might say, well, I'm going to go and ask my cancer nurse about additional support now because they might know. Um, so I think it's important to, you know, have those questions, write them down because it's always difficult when you get to the consultation, you go, I know I had a question <laughs> and I can't remember what it is. So write it down. The other thing is that, you know, if you've got questions, you know, the cancer helpline can be useful. Um, but other websites, and and if you don't feel like you're getting getting the answers, then you know take it to your your healthcare team. That makes so much sense, Michael. I think that using every available tool at your disposal works, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Sometimes it can be overwhelming, though. So I think that you know to be able to you know to go to someone who you trust and say, look, you know, I'm a bit overwhelmed. I keep reading all this information. Just give me the facts, or you know, where's where's something that I can look at that's they're going to, you know, be short and short and concise and evidence-based. You know, there's so much stuff out there. You you don't want also to be overwhelmed. Absolutely. And then, Michael, there was a time when I was in hospital and I was getting chemo. And next to me, there was this man and uh, I had the doctor talking to him about palliative care. And the man was just freaking out. He was saying, no, I don't, I don't want to go. They're sending me to die. And I kept hearing about it for hours. I mean, is that a general perception of palliative care, do you think? I think it's a common perception. I think that many people equate palliative care with, with end of life. And I guess that we we think that palliative care is much more than that. And palliative care is about... I guess making people as well as they can be uh, for as long as possible, and and looking after physical symptoms, but emotional, psychological, spiritual health, but also seeing that person in the context of a family um, or an extended group. And, and often palliative care is, is about trying to help everybody uh, and to try and keep people as well and healthy for as long as possible. So we think the palliative care sits alongside um, active treatment. And, and often it's good to engage palliative care at an early stage um, when they can, can help with the sort of whole person and the whole family issues and family needs. So although palliative care might be have particular assistance for people towards the end of life, they, palliative care, the whole team, that's doctors, nurses, allied health, etc., can be valuable um, for a much longer period of time. And they may, palliative care might come in and, uh, you know, might, so we might have somebody with um, difficult symptom issues and we might ask palliative care to be involved and then they might be involved for a period of time and then not be involved and they might be involved again a year or two later. So palliative care can come in and out. Yes, and, and you touched on spirituality, like, and when it comes to, for example, cancer survivors, people who have beaten cancer and quite often have a completely, you know, a shift in priorities and the way they look at life. What do you think is the role of spirituality and, I guess, other uh, psychological um, approaches to, you know, look look into the future and um, have a better perspective? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so, look, I think that uh, what you're um, perhaps t- touching on partly is that cancer is a life changing experience. And, you know, it's not all over when it's over and people, uh, many people see life differently. And and often people um, think about meaning and purpose and what, you know, what's going to be important for them for the rest of their life. 
uh, and they also find meaning and connection in different ways. Uh, and I think that for a lot of people, it is a time to to reflect and also to see what gives them meaning and purpose and value. And for some people, religion or faith is important and strengthens them and allows them to be strong and get through life. Uh, that's not for everybody. And other people, it's just uh, kind of resetting life and going, well, these are the sorts of things that are important. These are the sorts of people who are important. These are the sorts of activities that are important to me. And this is how I want to live my life. But but that's at the same time, you know, people talk, survivors talk about, you know, an obligation to have an epiphany uh, and an obligation to feel like, you know, wow, my life has changed fun- fundamentally. For some people it is. And for other people, it's just like, well, I just get back onto life and it's pretty similar to how it was before, you know, <laughs> and, and life hasn't changed fundamentally. But for some people, it is a shift. And I think for most people, there's a degree of seeing life a little bit differently. Absolutely. And in terms of cancer survivors, how does the doctor, the general practitioner, how do they stay in loop with the cancer survivors? I mean, I have a great relationship with my GP, but it doesn't feel like there is a holistic, you know, integrated approach out there. Yeah, so I think that um, we probably all recognize we could do a better job of providing a more integrated, coordinated healthcare model. And we know that for many people, they have a very fragmented healthcare system. uh, And they might be seeing, even in just when we think about cancer, they might be seeing a surgeon, they might be seeing a medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist. They might perhaps also be seeing nursing allied health. Uh, and that's just their cancer part of their, you know, their health. Uh, if people have other health conditions like diabetes or heart disease or lung disease, then they could be seeing other practitioners. And then the GP is supposed to kind of um, bring it all together and see the whole person and coordinate all of this. And that's pretty challenging. And, and I don't think we necessarily do a good job of that. In the cancer world, people often talk about and GPs talk about, you know, that they, the GP might make a diagnosis then they go and see a specialist, they kind of get stuck in the cancer world, and then at some stage they pop out again, and the GP often goes, well, I don't know what happened to you. You know, I haven't had good information. And then that can be a problem because often patients and survivors go, oh, I don't know if I should be seeing my GP because they don't seem to know what's going on. And that's not the fault of the GP, it's the fault of the the system, and often cancer care, you know, that we don't do a good job of integrating in, uh, the GP with the whole person care. Uh, we think that it's important though, because often people have other illnesses. Often the GPs had a, a long-standing relationship with that person. They might've known them for you know decades uh, and they understand the whole person. And so it's really important that, that we don't neglect the GP. Now, the tricky thing is that obviously if you're coming into hospital on a regular basis, it's extra visits to say, oh, you should be seeing your GP as well. You know, understandably, many patients would say, but I'm seeing you, you know, I don't want to have, you know, have to see yet more appointments. So it's challenging. And I think we need to be doing a better job of communication from the point of cancer diagnosis through the cancer treatment and beyond. Uh, and the GP has a really important role in managing other illnesses, in try- in health promotion, in wellness, trying to help people quit smoking, exercise, eating well. Um, managing the whole person. So there's a way to go in that. And I think we're making progress, but there's still a way to go. Fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing your perspective, Michael. It's a pleasure. 